Welcome to the Tolling Stone Podcast. I'm Garrett Ryan, and my guest today is Rocco Butlier, a Lego artist who specializes in creating replicas of historical monu- monuments and buildings. Rocco, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Garrett. No, it's my pleasure. So I want to spend most of our time today on your new model of ancient Rome, which mm-hmm. I am extremely impressed by uh, at first blush, let me tell you. But before we get into that, um, I wanted just to begin by asking um, how you started using Legos to recreate historical landmarks. Sure. So I basically field this question pretty much every other person who comes up to me <laughs> at events, but it's it's great because the answer kind of, answers always evolve as they go. But mm. the gist of it is that I started just like anyone else, basically have been building with Lego for as long as I can remember. Um, And it's always reflected my current interests at the time. So growing up watching the Harry Potter movies, I was buying sets that tied in with those. And eventually when I got into high school, I got interested in architecture. And that's when I put the two together and used Lego as a way to express my interest in that. And um, what I ended up doing was keeping all my models to roughly the same scale. So, you know, we're both in Chicago. I started with mm-hmm. uh, hometown favorite Willis Tower, aka oh, yeah. Sears Tower. Uh, and basically that set the scale for everything. And I just kind of kept doing different world landmarks um, after that, you know, like Empire State Building, Burj Khalifa. Um, eventually, though, the, I guess the one thing that there's a big Lego building community out there of fans and people who do it on the side and some who do it somewhat professionally and vendors, things like that. I guess one of the differences is that whereas some people might make one, one new model for a show each year uh, to contribute to like a table space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they take that apart, reuse that, those parts in something um, that they build later on. I basically, because everything is the same scale, I started keeping everything together. And the unintentional consequence of that was that, it kind of lent itself well to the curation of what you might call a body of work. So Mm. eventually I ended up with like 40 or so different landmark models from around the world, mostly in Chicago. And then uh, going into studying architecture at IIT in the Mm -hmm. city, um, ended up going through that five-year program, took my bricks with me to school and Mm -hmm. wanted to have that accessibility of the bricks being on hand so I could quickly draw from the inspiration I was learning in the academic setting to apply to some of my creative work. And that was hugely beneficial and eventually just led to some crazy opportunities. And I'm currently with a family owned event called Brick Universe that just travels the US and uh, does around 12 to 15 shows a year. And mm-hmm. I guess uh, the work shifted from, you know, sort of a focus around modern landmarks and things that I might have learned or focused on in the academic setting to historical precedents. Um, you know, there was always, there were always some projects that we studied during school, like Hagia Sophia and mm-hmm. different renowned precedents that go as far back as, you know, in that case, Eastern Roman times. But um, my own interest kind of developed, grew out of that, just as wanting to use different types of Lego bricks, different, colors and challenge myself along those lines because I figure even over 50 or 60 models in if I'm going to make something new it might as well be something that challenges me so Mm -hmm. as long as that's the case I'll keep doing it and that just sort of the ball kept rolling into historical um, landscapes as well so things like Forbidden City and Ancient Rome and Mm -hmm. also done like first century Jerusalem Vatican City and those have been huge projects on a scale that I never really sought out to do in the first place (laughs) but just sort of naturally 
Okay. And, and what is the scale you build things to? Everything's roughly one to 650. Mm-hmm. And the way that that got set was actually the doing Willis Tower, um, just basically did one black plate for the floor and then a clear plate for the windows and added it up to the accurate number of floors. Mm-hmm. And in that case, and just very few other cases, it actually, if you count the number of floors, it's accurate to the real thing, but very mm-hmm. rarely does that actually work out. But that's mm-hmm. basically how the, the scale started. Huh. Yeah. How, how tall is an 110-story Lego 1 to 650 version of the Willis Tower? Um, so if it's, uh, yeah, let's see, 110 it- stories. So I, it's about three or four, well, you can't see my bottom hand here. <laughs> right, right. Uh, about like uh, somewhere between, I want to say about three feet tall. Okay. Maybe maybe uh, more like two and a half, because then you got things like the Burj Khalifa, tall right, right. in the world, that's like uh, a meter. So oh, it is. Three okay. and a half feet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. So when you began modeling these historical buildings, yeah, I'd imagine mm-hmm. something like the Forbidden City or the Vatican would be yeah. incredibly complex. Um, <laughs> how do you research the details of the things you're modeling? So that's a good question. Um, starting out, some of these have been commissions. I've been fortunate to have a client in Brazil at the, in Sao Paulo at the Museo da Imaginação, which is Museum of Imagination. It's basically a children's museum, mm-hmm. but they dedicated uh, half of their second floor to like history and Lego and were commissioning projects from Lego artists all around the world. And that's one of the ways in which I've been able to do these large historic layouts. And the reality with those is sometimes with commissions, the client has a deadline that you um, approach them with a realistic time frame <laughs> of this scope of what they're imagining and how long it might take you to do it. So there's a bit of push and pull. And Forbidden City is a good example because I was able to uh, get a lot of detail in there given um, we originally started it in March of 2020. So as you can imagine, um, that we hit the pause on that pretty quickly, (laughs) actually, um, for obvious reasons. And But all my shows and all my projects were canceled at the time or postponed indefinitely, right? So... I uh, ended up just having nothing else to do but just work on designing Forbidden City. And uh, thankfully, I had like a little bit left over from the commission before that uh, with this client. So I just ended up buying the parts and then finished it in July. So they uh, wanted, basically bought the piece from me after that. And we you know, resumed the commission for all intents and purposes. But in terms of finding the details, got fortunate in that sense because I did have a lot of time to explore and look up uh i eastern uh models in particular especially like when i did the taj mahal as well that one's a bit more extensively documented but it seems like the further east you go the harder it is <laughs> at least for me being sort of i guess not having all the professional um contacts and all mm-hmm. um it's more difficult to find the resources to get into all the nitty gritty so i do rely heavily on things like google earth and some of the websites of the official like palace museum websites for mm. forbidden city, which is a little outdated. So, you know, you get kind <laughs> of a, uh, older version, I guess, not as intuitive to sort of look through everything, but you can make it work. And there are a lot of, uh, tourist photos as well. And it gets more difficult when you get some into some of the more obscure palaces because the forbidden city is one big palace complex. Right. But then you got, tons of different smaller precincts and smaller Mm. palaces within that, that you want to do justice. Right. And um, I always, in terms of 
unique details throughout each piece. I always make sure that I'm never hitting copy and paste. Mm. Um, I always like to give each, each individual thing its own unique flair, not for the sake of um, just being superfluous, but for the sake of the fact that each thing was built at a different point in time, right? So it's important that it is in the same style and consistent in that sense, but also unique in its own individual way. And that sort of, that philosophy carried through on projects like First Century Jerusalem, where, you know, half of the model are dense, um, sprawling limestone dwellings along the the hillsides of the valleys and things like that, and Mm -hmm. the grand monuments like the temple. And then the other half of it is basically suburbs in the Bezitha neighborhood, which at a certain point you're wondering if you're not just um, replicating urban sprawl. So <laughs> it it is important to, again, make them each of those little individual buildings uh, unique. And it really just adds to the authenticity, I think, and the weight of the the weight of history, like being able to look at it and understand that, this is to a certain extent hypothesis of what might have been there, but also very grounded in a re- in real precedence of what they've found archaeologically as well. Hmm. Yeah, I know that sounds like the most responsible way to approach that that sort of project. Sure. You know, my, my favorite building on Earth um, is Hagia Sophia. Okay, and every That's time fun. I'm in Istanbul, um, I just like to stand. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, I'd like to stand and just look at it. And the most fascinating bit about that building, the exterior especially, is how many times it's been repaired and mm-hmm. kind of shored up after earthquakes have knocked down half of the dome or, oh, yeah. you know, cracks have <laughs> developed in some, you know, some fragile wall. And so yeah. you see, you know, it, it's a very, despite being a very symmetrical design, there are all these interesting asymmetries all over the place where it's been propped and buttressed and added yeah. onto <laughs> over the millennia. And uh, I always like that about the building. It, it feels like it's a millennium and a half old. And with many ruins, which have been tidied up, do not. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, it gives a character. So I, right. I, I think, is it Anthemius, the one who redid the, mm. the, the dome? And by that time, the, the pendentives, or I guess the foundation, right, right. The, the square propping it up had settled a bit. So the dome is mm-hmm. elliptical in, like, horizontally, horizontally yes, yes. and vertically. But you wouldn't necessarily know that. And then you got all the earthquake proofing the buttresses like mm-hmm. you're saying by i think uh mimar sanan who yes, uh, yes. did it after uh the ottomans you know mm-hmm. took possession but uh yeah it's it's a fascinating building never been there myself but uh it's on my list i'd love to go <laughs> oh i'm sure for, for someone like you it would just be almost overwhelming just to, the massive <laughs> right. detail to suddenly see it and bit of a religious experience maybe. it would be yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah you know it's uh yeah, I, I was there once totally alone. It was like late at night and on October evening before they closed it. And there was no one else in the building. Oh, wow. It <laughs> remains one, one, one of my favorite experiences of my ever traveling, just to be able to walk up and down, you know, just, just your footsteps, no other, no other sound. Um, just, you know, the mosaics and the tile and the marble, yeah. just that, that sea of color and dim light. Yeah, it mm-hmm. really was. It was very cool. Pretty amazing. Um, anyway, getting away from my, my travel rhapsodies. Um, <laughs> so, so when you're doing something like, um, you know, First Century Jerusalem or the Forbidden City, mm-hmm. um, is there any kind of detail or design element that's especially hard to render in Legos? Ooh. Uh, yeah, so First, uh, not First Century, uh, Forbidden City is a great example of a case in point. Um, mm-hmm. Like I was saying earlier, I like projects that, are challenging for new and interesting ways. And obviously Forbidden City, well, well, not obvious to your viewers, I guess, was the first time I had done anything with traditional Chinese architecture. And Mm -hmm. the number one thing, I guess, that I learned uh, looking into that 
how they ended up doing all that is the traditional Chinese architecture is very standardized in terms of like it's a kit of parts. So Mm -hmm. the styles of all the lower buildings speak to all the hierarchy of the grandest buildings all the way up to the Hall of Supreme Harmony um, on the center podium there in Mm -hmm. the inner court of the the palace. And uh, the rooftops were one of the trickiest details to sort of standardize, but also express differently at each of those hierarchies. And, you know, when you start, I ended up coming up with like a few techniques for the roof, uh, rooftop ridges where they basically meet um, at the eaves and uh, ended up using different parts like uh, kitchen knives. And hmm. the thing about working with Lego is you have a limited uh, parts palette, right? So not every color comes in every part and, Lots of people at the shows ask, can you contact Lego and ask, uh, you know, will you make this part in this color? And that's a, a no, a non-starter, basically. So it forces you to be more creative, right? So you end up using cutlery and kitchen knives for things hmm. like the roof, rooftop eaves on those smaller buildings. And then when you get larger, where they're sort of double stacked, um, like one roof, of, one tier of eaves and then a second on top, you end up for the lower ones on those ridges at the corners, I use things like carrot stalks because they have a sort of organic flair that really fits well with the scale to replicate um, what takes place at those uh, corners to begin with. And then uh, the, you also want to make the buildings of the highest hierarchy stand out as well Mm -hmm. visually. So um on the Meridian Gate and the Hall of Supreme Harmony in particular, since those are the two most prominent and largest of the palace structures there, ended up using um, dragon jaw elements to huh. basically like slope in um, on the, the, I guess, the transverse sides of each of the um, rooftop eaves. So that was a cool little hmm. parts usage. And then the the ridge in the center is made with a surfboard element. So again, it's sort of like looking at a list of all the different elements that come in the specific color you're working at. In that case, it was a very bright yellow, which was also, you know, a color that I had never used extensively in any piece. And then here it is the primary color that you see when you look at it, because the rooftops are basically the first thing you see from above. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it keeps it interesting in that way. Totally new style, totally different colors. And different parts vocabulary that you're constantly expanding and adding to your lexicon, I guess, in terms of your mm-hmm. awareness of which parts you can end up using. And then there are always each of those massive projects are highly informative for me just because there are always carryovers that lead into the next projects as well. And even though they might be completely distinct styles or geographic regions, um, once that those Parts are locked in as an idea. You start to see them in numerous different ways, which I think is the cool thing, especially that I am fortunate to get to show most of these around um, mm-hmm. to across the across the country uh, to people who may not have never seen them before. Because I think the closer you look, the more you recognize the parts that you have might have in your own collection, right? So it's pretty uh, relatable, I guess, in that sense. It's interesting how your problems in creating these models mirror those of an, ar- an actual architect, right? You know, those are trying sure. to build a building. You know, you're, yeah. you're, tr- you're using a limited, you know, 
set of possibilities in terms of and materials, budget. plans, yeah. budget, right? <laughs> um, to For maximum effect, in your case, sure. both realism and kind of just impressiveness at that scale. And mm-hmm. I'm sure your training as an architect has been very, I know, very pr- fruitful in all kinds of ways while doing this, you know, thinking in, that, in that, those terms. Yeah, I think so. And certainly, as I said, the academic setting helped inform the artistic expression mm-hmm. um, in these projects that I continue to do to this day. But the reverse is not really true. Like, I didn't ever build anything out of Lego for a uh, deliverable for studio, for example, just because mm-hmm. it's more important to experience um, readily adaptable modeling mediums. And I loved making models, despite my professors insisting I didn't need like a second or third <laughs> model. Um, and, but I totally, I don't ever regret that. And I still got, you know, A's and B's in studios. So it wasn't like I was just defying them and not, (laughs) you know, ending up with, I guess, a coherent end product, right? But Mm -hmm. um, I think, yeah, it it was pretty instructive. And although I I skipped the desk job altogether, I didn't spend a single day uh, at a desk at a firm after uh, graduating. But again, I was fortunate to just have opportunities um, to sort of work with others uh, at the uh, start of after I, you know, after I graduated uh, back in 2017, but then mm-hmm. fairly quickly afterward, just ended up taking it full time on my own and took a little while to reach any point of sustainability. But uh, I guess sort of like most other practicing architects, the goal is to get out on your own, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's not like I necessarily skipped any steps, but I just sort of um, it did go, I guess, out on my own from the get-go and um, it's been a learning curve and you kind of learn at, you know to have a bit of a business acumen as well on top of that because that's mm-hmm. the only way you can make it right but uh, just fortunate to be in this position where I can still keep uh, exploring and uh, creating and still have it keep the lights on right. Uh, believe me, as a as a public historian, I know very well that dynamic <laughs> of you know trying to do what you love and also you oh, know yeah. not starve. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it, it is. It's, it's wonderful that you manage to find this uh, this way that your hobby can become your livelihood, and that's I've been doing that yeah. for a couple of years now, and it's it's a great way to be. That's awesome. You know, different kinds of stresses sometimes, but mm-hmm. it, it is uh, it's a cool thing. Yeah. So, so uh, returning to our topic, um, what was the first Greek or Roman building that you modeled? So. That had to have been Tiber Island. And oh, okay. the way that that started is uh, this client that I mentioned in Sao Paulo, the first mm-hmm. major large diorama, historical diorama I did for them was ancient Rome, uh, same time period as the new piece and mm-hmm. actually same rough uh, boundaries in terms of the geography that it covers. And the setting with them was obviously a commission that sort of had to be done within three months. So there were these limits to how far I could delve into it, but mm-hmm. it was definitely very, um, very um, like jumping off the deep end into a style I had never attempted before. And despite the fact that it had to be done designed and built within three months, which was basically a bit of a whirlwind, I think I did manage to find, you know, some, a lot of interest in there, obviously, because uh, that piece was in 2019. And in the four or five years, four years since then, I've just kept uh, researching and reading up on Rome. And Mm -hmm. that uh, really just got the ball rolling for wanting to do this piece on my own, where so it would be something that I actually own and that I can bring to my gallery shows around the US. And so that's basically one half of the thesis of this new project. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's all about being able to show it to other people. And 
Um, it's never a foregone conclusion, but the idea is that it will keep expanding and eventually get to a point where, you know, it would have something like a million bricks and cover the entire fourth century city within the, um, Aurelian walls. Um, oh, wow. well, I, I guess the first, uh, you know, Greco-Roman classical thing I did was Hagia Sophia. So that was a 2018 piece, but, uh, mm. yeah, that obviously comes a bit later in the, uh, not necessarily directly imperial architecture per sure, se. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, sort of a, 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 a post-project. Um, yeah, an offshoot. So an offshoot, right, yeah. right. Uh, Someone went off solo, got weird. Mm -hmm. But um, so returning to the, the new project, you know, this model of imperial Rome. Um, mm -hmm. And so what, what's the date? Is the early 4th century, you said? Yeah, uh, mid-4th century, okay. around there. Um, I, I'm sure you know there's this famous description of um, of Constantius II coming into Rome. Um, Ammianus Marcellinus, the historian, has this description of this emperor, uh, Constantius II, one of the sons of Constantine, um, who had never been to Rome before, had been raised in Constantinople in the east. <laughs> yeah. And so he finally visited the city, and right. his mind is absolutely blown. You know, he's coming in, you know, mm -hmm. he sees the form of Trajan, the Colosseum, the Pantheon, you know. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, he just can't believe, you know, how impressive the city is. And, of course, I guess it's kind of its height, you know, monumentality. Yeah. Um, and, and so th this project, um, so you're trying to recreate the entire city, a million bricks, um, or more than a million bricks, probably. Um, how? So you, this is something you've been thinking about for three years then, um, or for, for quite some time, or four years, I guess? Yeah, so ever since that first commission for the, for the mm -hmm. museum, and just kept researching it since then. So, yeah, since... 2019 and then uh, 2021, late late that year is when I really started to plan this and how do I want to mm -hmm. launch it? How do I want to get people invested? Which is where I had the idea of launching a Patreon page, and mm -hmm. uh, that took root in early in you know January 2022. So that's been going for over a year now and slowly building and mm -hmm. uh, just figuring out ways for people to sort of feel invested in it because you know it's going to take a village, right? I, um, right. And it's it's important, I think, for artists, but especially it, difficult in this sense, because, you know, you, you look further back to like Renaissance era artists and yeah, they had to do the projects that they didn't necessarily want to occasionally. But um, if they're prolific enough, they might have had like patrons to help uh, mm -hmm. like one single patron. Right. Like you think of the Medici's and all right, that. Right. So um, that's, you know, less likely to happen uh, these days. That's why it, I think it's it's great in the sense where the shows are basically, you know, working class people that come to mm -hmm. the event and those, they're the ones who support all the small businesses that go into creating these events. Um, in the same sense, it's like, I've relied on these people for this long. So I think it'd be great to have this be sort of a, you know, anyone who wants to contribute can and obviously mm -hmm. different tiers and things like that. So it's, it's great in a way to have it uh, partially crowdfunded and it helps allow me to have the sort of, or build a more self-reliant business model where it's not like mm -hmm. you're waiting for the drop in the bucket commissions that may only come right. once every few years. Yeah. Well, again, I can very much sympathize, you know, mm -hmm. also having a Patreon myself and otherwise relying yep. upon things like, you know, YouTube advertising and, exactly. you know, no one reads books anymore. So the book checks I've given up on, but um, oh. it's, it's one of, it's one of these things where, um, you know, of course, as a Roman, as I always think of like you know, Virgil or Horace, the great poets, mm -hmm. you know, who had their Mycenas, you know, their, their patron who, 
footed the bills and let them focus on things like poetry yeah. that they were good at. Right. And of course, we all, we all love to have a Mycenas, you know, or a Lorenzo the Magnificent. But, you know, in the meantime, we have Patreon. And like you said, it, exactly. it makes it... It makes it a, a democratic project in a lot of ways that you right. feel in touch, in touch with your fans in all kinds mm-hmm. of, you know, really organic ways. And it, it's a great thing. Yeah. Um, and I and, think they uh, know what they're buying into also, right? right? Like mm-hmm. they don't, most of them aren't going to come in with expectations of like, oh, I'm paying you now. So you should sort of angle your project in the way that I'm interested. It's like, no, mm-hmm. it's sort of an organic uh, right. growth out of, Mm-hmm. the audience you've already built who understands and sort of is into what your uh, inclinations are to build on your own. So, Yeah, I, I think it's the internet at its best, really, mm-hmm. you know, kind of making right. connections to people with the same interests and, yeah. and building communities on that basis. Yep. So so your model, um, is it based on the famous model in the Museum of Roman Civilization, the one from the 30s? Um, that's, I, I've seen that one before, uh, you know, years ago when I was sure. in Rome. And it's pretty astonishing, you know, to see it all yeah. laid out like that. Okay, so you were there pre-2014, because I think I the was, museum's yes, been closed I, since then. Yeah, I was there. I, I studied there for a semester in 2007 um, okay. when I was still in college, and so it was oh. still open back then. And uh, Yeah. I have some grainy pictures of it, you know, and all of it. Sure. You know, all of oh, story. yeah, tell me about it. I, I used that <laughs> model as my primary reference. Um, mm-hmm. So this is the Plastico di Roma Imperiali, Italo Gismondi. He... What's it called? Um, I used that as my primary reference back in 2019 for the first go around. And that was a great way of being able to look at most of the areas that I needed to model pretty quickly. Um, but the, uh, I watched this documentary with, uh, Mary Beard, who mm-hmm. your audience will undoubtedly know. Oh, yes. Um, and, uh, she did like a sit down, like looking at the model and admiring it. And she sort of said that one thing that, it misses is sort of the hustle bustle, the comings and goings and the feeling mm-hmm. of a vibrant urban city because, you know, it has a style to it and it's, it's great for what it is. And I just feel like it sort of lacks a sense of uh, contrast in a way mm-hmm. it's it from the pictures. It's difficult to tell things like topography. So I never relied on it for that. Just mm-hmm. mostly like the massing of individual structures, but uh, in terms of like, hierarchy like architecture and color variation that's something that i can use the lego to my advantage i guess to Mm -hmm. differentiate that because you got things like you know if if i'm doing a domus or an insulae um Mm -hmm. then i'm using colors like tan and rooftops of uh specific shade and that contrasts with buildings uh built in uh travertine or marble Mm -hmm. which are white or um, whichever color the marble might have been at that time and mm-hmm. different color roof as well. So again, it's sort of like Forbidden City where you have a specific hierarchical language for the types of structures. And I think in that way, it uh, it varies. And uh, the one thing that I'm really attempting to do with this is provide a, uh, a sense of a logos um, in the stoic sense. So like, mm. you know, in terms of, like the readings of Marcus Aurelius and all that in terms of stoicism, you it's sort of like that life force that's imbued within everything. And that makes inanimate objects, otherwise inanimate objects sort of come alive and you can sort of understand what is going Mm -hmm. on with them um, at a fundamental level. So that's, that's basically the, the sort of vitality I'm looking to bring to the new piece and all subsequent phases of its, construction and that for me has translated into just a wide variety of different parts usage and uh 
colors, like I said, but the thing with the parts usage especially is that if you go and look at some of the largest kits that Lego offers at the store and whatnot, they will have, you know, the largest kits sometimes only have maybe 200 to 300 unique elements. It might have 6,000 bricks, but mm-hmm. a few hundred of this part, a few hundred of that, et cetera. Um, whereas this ancient Rome model that I'll be debuting soon has uh, about 1,600 unique elements um, oh, wow. within within the uh, 104,000 bricks altogether. Mm-hmm. So it just goes to not, that wasn't necessarily an arbitrary goal or anything like that, but it's worth pointing out because it, it does speak to the kind of variation and the sense of vitality that I'm trying to show. Mm-hmm. Like it is a vibrant city and there's so much, so many different things that are going on throughout. Huh. Yeah, I like what you say about kind of trying the, the stoic idea of, you know, the, you know, the pantheistic, you know, world soul almost that imbues mm-hmm. all things. Exactly. And Rome was right, a, a probably a ferociously vibrant place in ways that that very kind of staid classical model um, yeah. in the Roman civilization does not, does not capture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I can't quite get down to like the individual, you know, graffiti on the walls <laughs> of the alleys and all that. But right, right. It's sort of, there's, there's a bit of greediness or ugliness, right, that uh, sure. you want to show and be honest about as well yeah you know you're doing the aventine for something you want to show that it's a dock district you know there's grime <laughs> oh, on the yeah. walls you know mm-hmm. and man, we'll <laughs> man maybe yeah so so this first chunk that you're doing um uh, how big is it how, what, what part of the city are you modeling in this first initial bit yeah so it starts with the tiber river river uh-huh. and that is because every large piece i do i start at the lowest elevation right because that's your okay. baseline and mm-hmm. you go up from there in terms of substructure to reach the higher hills and uh, mm-hmm. large, taller platforms and all that. So um, Tiber River has a corner of that with the island uh, specifically mm-hmm. and along the bend. And then from there, it expands along the uh, Valley of Mercia, is it? With the mm-hmm. uh, Circus Maximus. So mm-hmm. it covers that whole frontage, um, doesn't have any of the Aventine Hill, but then okay. it circles around to the Velabrum in between mm-hmm. the Capitoline and Palatine Hills, has the entire Capitoline, the entire Palatine, mm-hmm. um, the Forum Romanum, the original Forum, just mm-hmm. uh, north of the Velabrum, and that goes all the way to the Colosseum, and it kind of circles around at that corner and then goes out at a right angle for the the Claudium, the Temple of Claudius, and that mm-hmm. giant... In, enormous <laughs> yes. uh platform of which almost nothing is left today mm-hmm. and uh then circles back down to the uh along the via triumphalis to the circus maximus so it's a pretty large area and uh i i want to say i don't have my diagram in front of me but it's over four million square feet represented mm-hmm. anyway um so at the one to 650 scale it's about um seven feet by five feet mm-hmm and especially with some of the overhead views of this thing, you can see that there's just a, a rigorous like dedication to trying to capture all of the individual angles. And like you wouldn't know it until you get into this and really study it. But the Palatine Hill or the, the Domus Augustana specifically, I mm. guess, is angled four degrees relative to the Circus Maximus. So while the Circus Maximus follows the regular Lego stud grid, I had mm. to divert subvert that for the the Domus Augustana right behind it. So that was, you know, these things that definitely mm-hmm. add to the time it takes to design it and then build it as well. So it complicates all those layers. But at the end of the day, it's undoubtedly worth it, right? Especially if the plan is to make this be a sustainable project that can be uh, 
that can continue past the boundaries of phase one. If you have mm-hmm. some glaring inaccuracy in the very first stage, you're going to be in trouble down the line because you're going to end up with maybe an extra mile of walls once you reach <laughs> the outskirts of the city. So it's important right. It's important to do those details now um, at the start. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's commendable, you know, being dedicated to historical accuracy for its own sake, you know, that, that you are trying to model the city, you know, within this medium as well as you can. And yeah, yeah I, I can't imagine the... <laughs> trying to angle four degrees, the palace four degrees out from the grid. Yeah. I mean, that I never had the patience being good at Legos for that. I had Duplos when I was a kid, you know, the, the big sure. ones, of course. You know, and I, okay. you know, I play around with those, but gotta the start sets. Somewhere. Yeah, got to start somewhere, but I never went anywhere from there. I stopped there too. Okay. Um, and so I, I appreciate very much people who have the both the patience and the dedication to detail to do this well. It really mm-hmm. is a gift, you know, having that, you know, the concentration. Um, and yeah, but you know, at the same time, it's, uh, yes. at these shows I'm doing, I'm just one of several featured artists, right? So mm. it's a constant exchange between myself and the other artists who have completely different subject matter. I think that's mm-hmm. why the show works so well, but, and then beyond that, you have always like a bit of a local fan zone where local builders from whichever place we're at for a specific show, they contribute what they've done as well. And mm-hmm. it keeps the ball rolling and keeps like a, uh, a tightly knit community where it's not everyone doesn't know everyone because there are certainly just within the past couple of years, I think so many new people, but that's sure. what's great about it because it's so many different perspectives and um, everything is informed by precedent. So a lot of people, it's great to credit individual creators if you're taking some direct inspiration, but at a certain point you find inspiration from whatever it is, real world or another mm-hmm. Lego model someone else did and you, apply it and translate it for your own purposes. Yeah, well, that's any art, I think, right? You know, exactly. you, you take what you, any influence you can get and you yep. transmute that into what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that, that's fascinating. I mean, even just thinking about, you know, the Palatine Hill, all those very complicated substructures, the palace mm-hmm. must have been extremely time-consuming to model, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, that uh, it was definitely the densest, one of the densest areas of the city, just in terms of the fact that it's a contiguous structure right so right, right there aren't really any boundaries except the inner courtyards and mm-hmm. that means of course you have to model those all the way down to the the sub stories like the basements within the conglomerations and all that mm-hmm. um when i was doing that obviously the one of my main references for the project my primary reference actually is the atlas of ancient rome so that's by mm-hmm. uh andrea carandini mm-hmm. and uh on top of that, like for some structures, you always have to find a little bit extra because there's only so much one area can go. Like the, the Atlas, for instance, is mostly uh, architectural diagrams. So mm-hmm. in that sense, it's very plain and restrained in terms of color because they color code based on uh, one color for the existing structures that are left um, mm-hmm. in ruins um, and then another for uh, theoretical, another based on source material, things like that. Um, but in this case for the Domus Agastana, I did find, um, this, uh, um, I'm not exactly sure what his background is, but his name is Michael Bengston. Um, he mm-hmm. basically has extensive, like amazingly extensive drawings of the Domus Agastana from oh. basically like, uh, third century, right up through to fourth century and all the way to the end, like with the, Severan dynasty and the modifications mm-hmm. that they made to the eastern end of the hill. So mm-hmm. that those were invaluable to show it at two distinct time periods and um, also across the whole breadth of this enormous domus, right? So having multiple resources like that, I think is 
the only way to go, right? Like that's how you, journalists research a piece right. or how they should anyway. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it, researchers as well, like in your line of work, I imagine you need oh, multiple yeah. sources. So it's um, yeah, it, it you just got to look and eventually you might find something, but if not, you sort of use your best guess, I suppose, based on um, mm-hmm. precedent types of typologies. Yeah, you know, I imagine once you're beyond the monumental center, you know, into the area that it's all just kind of a sea of insulae, it'll be harder yeah. and harder, of course. It's so little, we know so little in many cases. Right. Um, and I'm sure you've seen like, um, what is it, uh, Lanciani's plan of, of Rome, that, oh, that yeah. 100 year old plan where every little yeah. trace he knew 100 years ago is there, every wall, every, you know, every every brick. But yeah. even that, you know, it only gets us so granular. There's just bits that we don't know. So see, that mm-hmm. you're right, you're kind of just saying, okay, let's, you know, take an Ostia style, you know, uh, exactly. insula and, and put it here let's you know yeah and um, I, I did actually take a trip to rome in 2021 and mm-hmm. went specifically to sites that i hadn't seen or just sort of missed out on the first time i was in rome two years mm-hmm. previous to that but ostia was one of my day trips and you know you take it's one of the best preserved examples like nearest to rome so i guess oh, yeah. it's one of the most reliable right in terms mm-hmm. of being able to visualize okay this started within this footprint on the city uh the the ground level on the street level but then it might have expanded just out from there at the top and then you had mm-hmm. very narrow clearance between adjacent buildings and that's sort of amazing and you mentioned Lanciani's former obese as well so that mm-hmm. was um th- thankfully that does come in a vector drawing online so I did oh really uh yeah. I downloaded that and then ended up sketching uh drawing my own vector lines for the uh topography of the entire mm-hmm. city uh just based on multiple sources because the topography was not one of the layers included in that mo- in that vector drawing i found but mm-hmm. there regardless there is a working autocad model that i have of the entire area that i sort of as i zone in on each individual area i'm adding like different construction lines and guidelines to keep track of the of dimensions of things i'm working at to see it in context next to areas i've already designed and mm-hmm. also critically to plan the dividing lines of where this this uh model actually subdivides and breaks down into different sections so that's an important fact as well as that it obviously can't be done on a big uh, tray or a sheet <laughs> of the entire thing, right? So you got to subdivide it and uh, go from there and figure out how these sections interlock without being overly visible um, mm-hmm. when they're all put together. So, but, and that's also how you transport it, right? So that's... Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah so how many phases do you envision then for this thing? Um, I've avoided any temptation to go and slice and dice or divvy up Uh, the overall mm -hmm. thing into a proposed number of phases, because I think it is uh, like I was just alluding to, as you design one area that might be next to something that you haven't approached yet, or isn't on the radar for maybe Mm -hmm. a few subsequent phases, for instance, you're designing the Capitoline Hill and the Imperial forums and the Campus Martius are right next to that. So you Mm got to sort of respect those boundaries, right? Because you don't want to be, uh, you don't want to mess up too much and end up having to uh, end up being stuck with something that's inaccurate. But at the same time, it's uh, it's good to keep in mind, like, okay, there's these different regional um, compartmentalizations, I think under in the Augustan era is when mm-hmm. they divvied yeah, that the, all up. Yeah, the, the 14 regions, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh-huh. um, so it, it doesn't go according to those regions necessarily, but um, it, 
I do have an idea like of what phase two will be. Um, haven't drawn the boundaries for that yet, but I am mm-hmm. in sort of the planning stages of that because, of course, as, as soon as I was done building this first phase, it's <laughs> just time to start <laughs> thinking about the, what the next one is. But um, I do imagine that will incorporate the Imperial forums as well as uh, oh, yeah. areas beyond that. So probably the Baths of Trajan as well, which will be mm-hmm. the first like mega complex um, right, right. of just one giant building. But uh yeah, so it, it's going to keep it interesting. And at the end of the day, the goal isn't to keep each phase like super um, intriguing in terms of big ticket items. Like it just, mm-hmm. obviously you do the center of Rome, like I've done now, you have the big ticket items, like the two, those two hills, mm-hmm. uh, Circus Maximus, Colosseum. But the goal is never to uh, necessarily rope in any one phase, like some big ticket item. It's just sort of to to constantly expand the the footprint of the city and the mm-hmm. follow where the topography wants to go and where the urban um, urban fabric is taking you. And uh, as long as there's a sort of bit balance between the larger imperial structures and the Sabura in between, I think mm-hmm. that'll be great just to have, uh, like I said, that, that contrast that I'm really looking for, which is the overall goal in terms of the approach to a vitality with this model. Yeah. You know, as someone who's thought about Rome for various videos, especially, you mm-hmm. know, that, that's the hardest thing to capture in a lot of ways is the, the sheer diversity of the city's topography, you know, where you have, everyone focuses on the grand monuments, which are still surviving in many cases yeah. and capture the attention in so many ways. But right. These are, you know, islands in the sea of, you know, neighborhoods that are incredibly diverse, both in you know, mm-hmm. human topography and actual topography exactly. from all over the empire, you know, and their little, uh, you know, there are these neighborhood shrines that are like their own little centers, you know, for clusters of streets. Um, you know, it's a, uh, it's hard to even conceptualize. I guess even like a, a medieval Italian town gets, gets at some of the complexity, you know, where it's very tightly knit, tall buildings, mm-hmm. narrow streets. Um, but even that just kind of only goes you know, so far. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's a fascinating problem. And I think that many historians who thought about the city of Rome can very much sympathize with you and kind of would throw back hands <laughs> up in despair at the challenge. Sure. Um, so it, it's commendable. Um, yeah. So the, 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 the whole model, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no go for it. <laughs> yeah, and nothing mm-hmm. very profound to say, frankly. But no. <laughs> um, so the, the whole model, you know, it, when you're done, the whole Aurelian wall, area within the Aurelian walls, um, how big will that be, roughly? About the size of the, the extant model or? The, the extant model is a larger scale. So that one is definitely bigger. This mm-hmm. one would be somewhere around ballpark of 20 feet by 25 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you're looking at something like in the neighborhood of seven by seven meters, roughly um, mm-hmm. about 600 square feet, I think is the number I came up with. Mm-hmm. Um just for like the initial presentation graphics. But again, it's, it's a uh, very much a process of learning as you go and uh, things like that. The board, the overall measurements are pretty safe to say that that will be around where it'll be, but uh, yeah, so pretty large. And yeah. I, the intention, I guess, is to also make it a um, exhibition centerpiece. Right. Mm-hmm. So I guess, like I was saying, my body of work is, well curated in the sense it's all the same scale and there are several smaller landscapes but they're in terms of in the future where i want to go with this is uh longer term exhibitions perhaps museums and galleries things like that so Mm -hmm. a lot of those you know it's not the end-all be-all but i do i would prefer to have a large centerpiece for something like that where 
it's something you lead up to, and it could be given enough uh, different historical uh, precedents, you could have like a bit of a journey through time or something like that, and you mm-hmm. end up on this uh, enormous piece of ancient Rome as the centerpiece at the end of the show or right in the middle of everything else. So mm-hmm. um, we'll see, but that that's the general idea. And at the moment, it, it's just good to be able to be designing it to go on the the circuit with all the shows we have currently and just have that in the back of my mind to work up to as I go. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very excited for the looking forward to the big unveiling. Um, so yeah. tell us a little about the, the, uh, so it's be unveiled later this month. Yes. The first section of the model. Uh, yeah. So this, this is on March 13th for recording this. It, yes. it'll, it'll be mm-hmm. on the 17th. So oh, it's Monday now we'll be debuting it Friday. Um, it'll have, um, I sent you the photos right before this. It'll yes, have yes. over a hundred, uh, photos just going all over the covering and scouring the surface and Mm -hmm. really showing how each corner no corner is overlooked and nothing is copy and pasted and it's all it's all variation in topography and different styles Mm -hmm. and hierarchies all of the above and so that that's one thing i'm really excited about and then i also have a model film that'll go along with it uh that's Mm -hmm. being edited at the moment so it's kind of a high stakes uh, lead up to dropping one of these, right? And that's basically sure. how I always uh, go about it. I try and save everything or most of it for one big reveal at the end. But uh, yeah, that'll be just in a few days. And um, it, it's crazy because, you know, through the process, sometimes it ends up taking longer than you imagine. So I think it was last summer where I stumbled upon the, the, the track, the, the track I wanted to use for the model film. So mm-hmm. I've had that in my mind for over nine months now and along it, which is good in a way because then you end up taking all this time to design and build the rest of it. And as you're going through it, you're seeing views or pa- ideas for panoramas of the visual shots you want to capture as well as the on-screen text to kind of convey the most succinct points. Um, even though it's only a three minute video, I hope to kind of show a lot of that in a sort of quick, uh, in quick succession, just going throughout the area. And, uh, it's a great way, I think, to help other people, help viewers just scratch the surface, right? And then Mm -hmm. at the shows is where I'll have the infographics on the table. So it'll be debuting in Memphis, um, later this month, the last week of March. I think that's either the 24th or 25th. Mm-hmm. Saturday and Sunday, um, and uh, have infographics on the table that goes into even more detail beyond that. And then, of course, the most detail would be on Patreon for all those who are interested. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's uh, sort of a multi-layered process to and many forms of being able to show it because not everyone can see it in, por- in person, unfortunately. But hopefully, the more shows you do, the more likelihood of people of folks being able to uh, see it eventually. Yeah, well, I, said, I look forward myself to seeing it in person. Yeah. Uh, you know, whenever we get around to uh, meeting, but uh, yeah, no, it just you know, think about this. Um, I think Legos make Rome intelligible in a way that you know even the highest quality you know JPEG is not going to. Instead, the things like the topography, things like you know the variety and yeah. texture and color and scale. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a very interesting project you're doing here, you know, historically speaking, sure. quite aside from the, the technical achievement of doing it in Legos, which is just crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I'm glad to hear that from the his, historian's perspective, for sure. Yeah, no, it, um, very much and, so. Yeah. And uh, I think you're right, though. Intelligible is a great word for it because, mm-hmm. uh, as I alluded to earlier, there's a recognizability that comes with each individual part that mm-hmm. 
the longer you stare at it, the more you recognize those individual pieces. And like you said, looking at an image, you can recognize what's going on um, mm-hmm. uh, topographically or architecturally based on the parts that are being used. Or if it's if it's something that's oriented sideways or something, you understand that's a vertical mm-hmm. expression of some sort of architectural or engineering feature. And Lego does lend itself pretty well. And with the kind of high contrast as well, to be able to visually differentiate those different hierarchies. So yeah, it's a, I think you're totally right. That's a great word for it. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking forward much to seeing it. So yeah. uh, anyway, well, well, thanks so much, Rocco. This has been absolutely yeah. fascinating. Um, and if everyone listening, I'd find out more about Rocco's work. Uh, check out his website, uh, roccobutlier.com. He has a Patreon um, and a wonderful Instagram account. So I highly encourage you, if you're interested in Rome at all, or Legos, or that wonderful Venn diagram, uh, check it out, please. It's great stuff. Uh, So, Rocco, thanks again. Yeah, thanks so much, Garrett. Really appreciate it. It was wonderful. And everyone listening, um, thanks for tuning in.